I have just been to see Her Majesty the Queen, who has invited me to form a government. From this day forward, a new vision will govern our land. Iraq collapsing, Syria collapsing, Yemen collapsing, Libya collapsing, and everything else in turmoil. Nothing to do with us. Hey everyone, welcome to Where We Are with Taryn Siegel, the podcast that breaks down what happened in the world in the last seven days and how we got here. On today's episode... The, the measures that they need to put in place to stop this thing, it seems, are just going to have such an unbelievably catastrophic effect on real people's lives immediately. So I have with me uh, BBC journalist in Africa, Joe Inwood. Joe, uh, thanks for coming on the podcast. That's absolutely my pleasure. Thanks for having me. So could you describe where you are right now? Uh, So I'm currently in my apartment in kind of just the west of Nairobi, the capital city of Kenya. And I'm looking out over, over the city and it's, well, it's a beautiful day and quite hard to believe that we are on the verge of entering what appears to be a kind of defining crisis for not just this country, but this continent as well. So are you outside um, in your flat? Yeah, I'm I'm outside. I'm on on my balcony outside my bedroom. The curfew that's in place in Nairobi or across all of Kenya actually isn't coming into force for a few hours now. But I think most people are just thinking, stay inside. We haven't got an official order to isolate in the houses, but I think it seems a lot of people are. So as you look over your balcony, what's the scene down there? Is it more deserted than usual? I mean that's difficult to say actually because it's it's just trees and, and mm. parks. I can't <laughs> I can't really. Uh, it's certainly when I when I've been out and about, it is incredibly quiet, especially really? as you near the curfew. You know this is this is an amazingly busy, bustling African city. There's a, a real sort of energy to the downtown areas, and you go down there now, and it's like a ghost town. It's it's weird. How long has that been lasting? That kind of ghost town vibe. Uh, it's really stepped up since the curfew came into effect, which was last Friday. So last Friday was the first day of the curfew, and there was, by I was out and about about six o'clock, and the streets that normally be kind of completely packed with cars were empty, and the cars that were there were driving a little faster than usual because I think they were trying to get home to avoid the curfew and the uh, and the police officers who were going to be enforcing it. So you mentioned the curfew a few times. So that came into effect last week. And what time are people supposed to be back in their houses then? So basically, between 7 o'clock in the evening and 5 o'clock the following morning, you are you have to be inside. Uh, although, actually, to be fair, you've, there's been some pretty uh, disturbing videos going around on social media, which appear to be legitimate, and they've been kind of, the police have, have accepted them, uh, of the police taking really quite brutal action. Some of them, some of it well before curfew, 5 o'clock, there was a, a ferry down in Mombasa on the coast, and they were, they were, being, they were tear-gassing people oh at 5 God. o'clock. Two hours before the curfew, uh, there's disputes around exactly what was going on. Uh, some people say it's because the ferry was going to be too crowded, but yeah, it's uh, it's supposed to be kicking in at seven is the official time. Wow! So it sounds like they are very stringently enforcing this, and that's probably why it's you know, people are just evaporating by seven o'clock on the dot. 
Yeah, and to be entirely frank, it's partly because the the Kenyan police, while of course many of them are dedicated officers, haven't always got the best reputation for how they enforce these things. It's, it's a depressing, depressingly familiar story you hear. I mean, there are videos, as I said, of people lying down, being beaten with sticks. Oh my God. So it's yeah, it's pretty it's pretty bad stuff here sometimes. Yeah, so they know to be extra cautious, I guess. Obviously, this coronavirus pandemic has been completely uprooting lives all over Europe, the United States, and Asia, but we haven't heard too much about it encroaching on the African continent yet. So remind our listeners, what's the situation over there? Have many cases been reported yet? Yeah, there are quite a few cases, and there was quite a lot of talk for a while, as you say, kind of, you know, this thing was affecting Asia and then Europe and North America, and everyone was saying, well, why isn't it hitting Africa? And there was a lot of talk at first of oh, maybe there's some you know, special factor here. Maybe it's something to do with people's resistance to malaria or you know, something to do with the weather here that it can't cope with. But actually, if you want to know why it's taken a bit of time to get here, you just need to look at one of those international flight maps you'll have seen, which show all of the different kind of air transport that happens around the world. And although there are a lot of connections between the African continent and China, where, of course, it's originated, actually, this is an incredibly cut-off, underserved part of the world compared to Europe and North America and Asia in terms of air transport. And I, and I think a lot of people are thinking now, actually, we were we were being a bit optimistic by thinking it wasn't going to come here. It's simply that because there's a lot less communication, it's taken longer, but it's starting to take hold. Um, the places where it's coming first, I guess, are the places you'd expect. South Africa, which is you know the economic powerhouse in some ways of sub-Saharan Africa, that was the place that had the first explosion of cases, and they've got well over a thousand now. Wow. But yeah, it is. It's starting. It's really starting to take hold here now, and I think people are realizing that it's going to get really very, very serious here. Yeah, I mean, in retrospect, it seems a bit obvious that the reason it wasn't taking over the continent of Africa so quickly was not because of some special immunization that the African people in yeah, the African climate had, but just it's not going to be as accessed as heavily as the United States and Europe and elsewhere. Yeah, that's exactly it. I mean, it does just seem that, you know, we're just a few weeks behind in terms of the progress of this disease. Right. So I guess before we get to the multitude of challenges and disadvantages that a lot of the African states are going to face here, at least some advantages are just with this delay itself, the African states have had some time to prepare and some leaders have been saying they've been able to incorporate some of the successes and failures from Asia and from Europe. So could you tell us a bit about what those are? I mean, what have been the preparation measures that they've taken so far? What have they learned from other countries? Yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right. And it's it's fair to say that actually African governments have, partly because they have this advance warning, but have acted more decisively than maybe people might have expected. I mean, of course, you've got you know, 54 different nations here and they're all going to put different measures in place. But they have put in lockdowns, they put in curfews. So in South Africa, we've seen a, a, a lockdown coming into force. Uh, also in, in South Africa, interestingly, they've, they've banned the sale of alcohol. Now, there's lots of different theories as to why. One of them, which is I mean, often a bit of a tangent here, but one of the effects of having a lockdown is people are stuck in home with each other and there are fears around domestic violence with increased drinking, with people drinking. Oh. So, I mean, that's that's just a that's just a theory as to why it's happened. They haven't. I don't think they've been explicit about that. There are there are two strategies that seem to have worked in dealing with coronavirus. One of them is the the South Korean approach, and I'm sure others as well, of incredibly, incredibly rigorous testing. Test everyone, have one-on-one patient care, have incredibly, you know, well-funded public health services that deal with this in an amazingly effective way. Now, 
unfortunately that isn't an option right. if you are an African state with incredibly underfunded health services I mean the people here and the, the the doctors and nurses especially will do their absolute utmost but they're starting from a very very difficult footing to deal right. with a crisis like this and so I think they've probably looked and said well we can't do that so what can we do we can try and stop its spread and I think they probably have looked to uh, to, to the European countries and seen that the ones that acted quicker have been more effective and ones that were slightly slightly lax in imposing a, a curfew or a lockdown have been hit hardest and that seems to be one of the main strategies they've gone for. It also makes me kind of wonder if these, and I don't want to sound you know derogatory, but these kind of like halfway measures of a curfew as opposed to a stringent lockdown, I mean... During the day, before 7 p.m., are people sort of going about their business as usual? Are they observing the two-meter distancing? I mean, how effective is a curfew if other measures aren't being taken? Yeah, I mean, let's be entirely frank at this point. It's impossible to know. You know, this is, we are in such uncharted territory here. None of us know. But almost intuitively, it does seem the case that coronavirus doesn't only spread at night. if If you're going to be having people going around their business as per usual... It's gonna, it's gonna spread during the day and then at night maybe, obviously not so much. But it seems that that won't be enough. But again, we don't really know. I mean, one of the things they have been doing that's really important here is limiting the number of people on public transport. They've been taking because that's obviously one of the the really big dangers in terms of it spreading is these. So here in Nairobi we have these little mini buses called matatus they call them, uh, and there you'd get, you know people crammed in in like sardines into these things because that's a cheap and effective way to get around it's kind of the form of public transport here and they have tried to encourage people not to and i think they've they've banned kind of having having those things over overfilled with people Uh, you still walk down the street and you still see them fairly packed on occasion Mm. um they've introduced hand sanitizer you know uh, uh, bus stops and that sort of thing they are introducing the measures that seem sensible but uh, how effective they're going to be it's you know we're probably going to start finding out very soon. Uh, one actually, one thing that is worth pointing out and has been was really noticeable is, is and I can I can speak primarily for Kenya, but I think it's been repeated across the continent. Is Africa is an amazingly religious place. You know, the people here are very very faithful and they are committed to their faith, but they have stopped people going to church, going to mosque, going to their places of worship, and people have done it. Just to give you an example, a friend of mine who's a, a deeply religious woman, and I would not I would never have expected her to say this, said she's not going to church. You know, her point was her connection between her, her God was personal, and actually, although it was important to go to church, she could and should at this point stay home. Yeah. And I think that has been a notable and, and, and an admirable reaction from the, the people of Kenya and the people of, uh, people of Africa. I think it's interesting what you said. So this woman said she could avoid going to church and so she acknowledged that she should do that i'm imagining there's some places where it's not a question of should you do this they really are unable to like self-isolation and you know those those mini buses that you mentioned that they probably need to take to transport themselves around the country i mean there must be ways in which it's just impossible to actually follow these protocols in some african states yeah you've basically absolutely hit the nail on the head and that is the challenge as far as I see it to this the measures that you need to take are total lockdown if you want to as the place it seems that has had been most successful in stopping this is China and they implemented a total lockdown nobody leaves virtually you know all businesses stop 
and they were they had both the economic capacity and the the state security capacity to implement that and that is just not an option that's available to most maybe all african countries you know many people here i think I, someone was telling me 70% live day to day week to week these are not people who've got nest eggs saved up you know people don't have the disposable income some do but large numbers of people don't if you're living in you know in a, an informal settlement somewhere like kabira what people would call a slum you're not going to have the ability to stop working and this is this is the problem that you that the measures that they need to put in place to stop this thing it seems are just going to have such an unbelievably catastrophic effect on the on not just the economy because you know what is in the end gdp is is a, is a number we're talking about real people's lives immediately people will not be able to eat and that's that's why it's such a challenge you can stop going to church as you say you can pray at home you can do that fine the idea of someone who has to go out every day to try and do a casual day job someone working in a flower farm someone working in a, in a sweet factory which is shut down you can't you can't stop working yeah you can't you haven't got that option Right. I mean, it kind of makes me think, maybe somewhat inappropriately, though, about what President Trump has been saying in the past few days about how we shouldn't have the cure be worse than the disease itself. But, you know, from the American perspective, that just means more of like an abstract, I mean, in some cases, real, real hurt, real pain. But for others, you know, abstractly, their wealth is getting depleted because the stock market is taking a hit, things like that, that are are painful, but not life or death. But in places like Kenya, there might be a point as to, you know, this total lockdown or, or self-isolation, if that becomes the rule, is that going to actually be worse than the disease? I mean, it's hard to even make that judgment. Yeah, and, and I think, as you say, in the context of Africa, it was exactly the point. I was with some Kenyan friends yesterday having a safe, socially distanced catch-up, and that's exactly what they said. They said that this the, the cure is going to be, if they implement that, the cure will do more damage than the disease. Now, I'm not sure that's necessarily right, but that is something that people are feeling. If you stop the economy here, I mean, it's impossible to see how it wouldn't have catastrophic effects on real people's lives. And we're not talking about, you know, your stock portfolio being reduced. We're not talking about decreasing your wealth. We're talking about decreasing your ability to feed your children. Yeah, so then, like, as you said, when you're speaking to Kenyans, when you're speaking to your friends... Is it your sense that they're more worried about the kind of economic implications of the, the measures the government might take, or are they more worried about the disease itself and its spread and things like that? I mean, it's always difficult to sum up what a population is thinking. I mean, you probably could get you get 40 million different answers to that question. But I can give you an illustration. There was a, some good friends of mine, a couple, a Kenyan man and woman, and they were basically, they were divided. He said... This is going to be the worst thing that's ever happened. This is going to tear through our population. It's going to kill. And he, he said, and this is obviously this is just a made-up figure that he came up with. But he's like, it's going to kill two million people. And she said, you know, we've got to we've got to stay up, we've got to stay optimistic. And I don't think it's going to be that bad. But what would be that bad is if it's destroyed the economy. And she she runs a a mobile bar business. So oh, her job is, you know, going to parties and setting up a bar. Now, there can't be many businesses that can be more affected than that by, right. uh, by any economic shutdown. And her feeling was, well, look, what, what are we going to sacrifice? We'd sacrifice all this and we probably wouldn't, it probably wouldn't work anyway because people are going to go out because people will starve otherwise. And so there is that feeling that, hang on a second, 
are we going to destroy the destroy the economy, really damage the economy, destroy loads of people's lives and and health because they're not eating, to try and stop something which is going to be, you know, a futile attempt because it'll spread anyway. And that was that was her feeling. Right. I mean, obviously, it's beset with challenges no matter what approach you take. But I guess the counterpoint I might Absolutely. make to that is that as horribly vulnerable as so many Kenyans are economically to a pandemic like this, the health infrastructure is completely vulnerable as well. I mean, basic things like, you know, basic sanitization techniques are hard to come by, right? And their hospital infrastructure, the number of ICU beds, I mean... Actually, the number... I've been trying to find out the exact number of ventilators, and I've seen a a large range of estimates. The most commonly used figure, and the one that seems most reliable, is about, about 200 ventilators across the country. Um, which I think, uh, but half of them are in private, half are in public hospitals. So it's miles below what you'd need. And I guess that's the point that she's making. Whatever we do, our health infrastructure is not going to be able to stand up to this thing. You know, we talk about, in in Europe and other places, they talk about flattening the curve. This idea, I'm sure your your listeners know about, of, of bringing down the peaks so they basically never get above a level that a health system like, for example, the NHS in the UK can cope with. And, by, and that way, you stop a health system being overwhelmed, you keep everyone going, you lengthen it out, but you make it much less severe. Now, that theory only applies when you've got a health system which you know you could realistically could cope with uh, the flattened curve as it were here it's someone like kenya i mean as i said you know the doctors will and nurses and and paramedics will fight this thing valiantly but they're going to fight a losing battle in many ways because they just don't have the number of ventilators you need the number you know the base level is so low and i don't mean that as a criticism of anyone it's just a fact of a fact of reality really The other point you make is exactly right about access to running water, access to basic sanitation. You know, of course, lots and lots and lots of people here do have access to those things. You know, I'm sitting in a, a modern apartment building and across the skyline of Nairobi, you see, you know, it's a big modern city with lots of people with access to such things. But lots of people don't. Lots of people live in informal settlements. Lots of people don't have running water. And they are, I think some, if you go to Kibera, which is the biggest uh, the biggest slum, I think it's still the biggest slum in Africa, but it's a huge ramshackle place. They have been putting some measures in place, but how do you socially distance when you're living right. in an incredibly cramped accommodation? How do you sanitise your hands and wash everything continuously when you don't have access to running water? It's, it's, there are so many challenges here that people will fight willfully and fight as well as they can, but it's, it's really, really difficult. And Yeah, it makes me wonder, I don't know if this has been talked about or considered in Kenya, but in Sweden right now and in the UK previously, they were kind of experimenting with this idea of allowing people to get to a degree infected by the virus so that it would start to build up um, a herd immunity. I was speaking with an epidemiologist a few weeks ago who said that that was kind of what the UK government at that time, so obviously it's changed since then, but that's what they were going for is hoping to build up a herd immunization to it, basically. I wonder if that's something that's been considered in Kenya at all, barring other better options. Yeah, I mean, I think the uh, herd immunity is one of those, and of course that was the UK government's strategy until they realised it would kill a quarter of a million people. It seems quite a euphemistic phrase for just letting everyone get it. And it may be that the herd immunity strategy is what is forced upon countries because they have no other option. I mean, you know, I should say all of this is speculation because we just don't know at this point how it's going to impact uh, people. I mean, I guess one thing that is worth mentioning, and this is the great unknown, 
is the demographic of Africa. Africa is an incredibly young population, and we've seen around the world that it is broadly older people who are most susceptible to this. And a lot of people have looked at the fact that we've got a very young population and said, you know, maybe that means that we're going to be more resilient and that the sort of death rates you've seen in somewhere like Italy, where you have an incredibly elderly population, well, that won't happen here. And there is clearly a logic to that. You can see that that is something where you could get some comfort from. There are a few things I think it's worth pointing out. Firstly, it's a young population, yes, but it's also a population where there are underlying health issues that aren't diagnosed because people don't have access to the free healthcare. A friend of mine was working in, in a free clinic in, in Kibera, and she said the number of people who have serious health conditions but don't know about it was, was frightening. I think diabetes was one she said was important, and also respiratory problems. You know, some parts, people do live in very, very cramped conditions where the air quality is not good. You're living near an industrial area. There's, the roads are, are clogged with smoke. Uh, and that leads to respiratory problems. Um, there's a large number of people with living with HIV AIDS here, 1.6 million in Kenya. Uh, and then the, the final thing in terms of the death rates of old people versus young people, they say in Italy the reason that, that the young people are not dying so much is because they're being saved at the expense of the old people. Mm. So it's not that you know, people in their 30s, 20s and 30s aren't vulnerable to this, it's just that they're sacrificing people in their 60s to save the people in their 20s and 30s. And so... It might be very, very deadly to a young population, but it's just that we haven't seen that yet because that young population is being saved elsewhere by the sort of healthcare you know, treatments that aren't going to be available to the majority here. Sorry if you might have said this already, but I'm wondering how many cases are there at the moment in Kenya? Well, how many cases are there in Kenya? How many cases have been reported in Kenya? Because those, those are very, very different things. I think the latest statistic as we talk um, on Sunday evening is about 25 cases in Kenya. I mean, the mass far and away, the uh, epicenter is South Africa, and they've got like well over a thousand. But the thing with this is, if you don't test for it, you don't know. And there's been all sorts of reports of people of running out of testing kits, of there not being enough, of there not being accurate. Really, the the official number of how many there are and the realistic guess are going to be very, very different things. Right. So, I mean, when you say that there's a discrepancy between the number of reported cases and the actual count, you're saying that it's because either there's a lack of testing just that's possible to be done or people are not showing symptoms so they don't know that they've contracted the virus. It's not the government trying to cover up the number of cases. It's just we don't really have the means to figure out the real number right yeah. now. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, it seems more likely. It's just that you you don't catch them all. Yeah. Um, so I know so much of this conversation has been speculation, but I'm going to ask you to speculate just one more time. Last week, curfew went to effect. What are you expecting in the coming days, in the, the next week or so to happen? Oh, <laughs> there's a career-ending opportunity you're giving me. Um, oh, I mean, I think the curfew's going to stay in effect. Um, it's, I mean, people are seemingly observing it. But I think what's going to happen quite quickly is that the economic reality of this is going to bite. If you're one of those flower farm employees, you know, who are just summarily dismissed without any notice, any severance pay, you've lost your job and you're not able to go out and find anything else because one of the things about a curfew is of course the curfew is seven o'clock but that means you've got to leave your work earlier some people here have two hour commutes you know three hour commutes people have to get these matatus vast distances because you can't live near you can't afford to live near the cbd if you're on three dollars a day 
And so it becomes virtually impossible to work. The people who normally commute into Mombasa just aren't going to be able to go to work because to get home, they'd have to leave before they've set off. And I think we're going to see the reality of this biting and people realising that a lockdown in the way that would be effective and that we've seen elsewhere is just going to be devastating for, for ordinary Kenyans. Yeah. All right. Well, Joe, thank you so much for talking with me. Um, it's a pleasure. Stay safe. And I guess it just we'll have to see what happens in the coming weeks. It's hard to even imagine where yeah. we'll be two weeks from today. Yeah, I know. It's amazing, isn't it? That you we think it seems, you know, two weeks. Oh, that's not a long time. But then you look back at what's happened in places like the UK and Italy and Spain in two weeks, in North America in two weeks, where we're going to be. I mean, I mean, I think it may be that two weeks time we're just starting to enter the sort of the foothills of this we're getting to, to base camp as it were of this this monumental struggle that the continent is going to go through uh, and you know i hope with all my heart that this doesn't happen but i, I just i'm i'm feeling you feel quite worried about how this is gonna gonna affect this this fantastic continent All right, and that's our show. Tune in next week for another episode of Where We Are with Taryn Siegel. And stay safe, guys. The headlines remind us daily, the world is a dangerous place. The elites in charge say everything's fine, stop noticing, but you know better. And your gut knows that time is short to prepare for a world that is four missed meals away from chaos. My Patriot Supply has helped over three million families become more self-reliant and is the company Americans trust to prepare. Go to MyPatriotSupply.com and secure their best-selling three-month emergency food kits. Each contain delicious breakfasts, lunches, and dinners, averaging over 2,000 calories per day. Secure at least one food kit for each family member. For a limited time, save $200, plus get free shipping on all their Ready Hour 3-month emergency food kits. You're not ready if it's not Ready Hour Foods. My Patriot Supply also has solar power generators, water filtration units, biomass stoves, heirloom seeds, and critical survival gear. Shop MyPatriotSupply.com today. MyPatriotSupply.com